Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stockholm, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode are Amory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about Grindr's recent IPO, why private equity is buying up so many public software companies, and Amory takes a deep dive on HubSpot. Amory, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Great to have you here. Very exciting day here in my Wall Street. Uh, it's our Christmas parties in about an hour and a half, I think, kicking off. So excuse us if we sound a bit giddy over the line. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, I wanted to start. Did you see this chat GPT thing from OpenAI? Uh, no. I'm familiar with OpenAI, but what what's uh, the chat? I don't know what you're on about. It's basically like a search engine on steroids and you just type in whatever you want and it gives you an AI generated answer. But everyone is like, this is the end of, we're all out of a job basically in <laughs> next month <laughs> if this thing goes well. Really? Because oh, I've started to use one called barely.ai, which is a, a Chrome extension. And it is pretty good. I mean, it's a bit buggy, but it is pretty amazing when you start to integrate AI with your research or your or your, your internet searching. Oh, it was nuts. And like really incredibly detailed stuff. I think one fella asked, <laughs> basically people are asking it to do their homework for them <laughs> in some shape or form. Yeah. But he was nice. like, how do I do a discounted cash flow model, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right, every analyst is out of work once this <laughs> kicks up. <laughs> So enjoy it while it lasts, lads. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's accelerating. It's that kind of second half of the chessboard thing where, you know, if you double a grain of rice for every square you move forward, like the compounded learnings now are really, really accelerating. So there's a whole proliferation of new AI add-ons and machines. There's another one there we were looking at recently. I think it's called Jasper. Jasper, um, I've heard, yeah. And you can just say, hey, Jasper, write me an article about a classic car renovation, a restoration rather, and you'll get a beautiful article that is original. Yeah. Yeah. And if but, I, it, but is it really original if it's being based off of like something? Because, you know, the AI like is, is collectively learning off of things that actual humans have created. So don't you think like the longer that we allow AI to 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 like create iterations, you know, 20 years down the line, the AI will be iterating on itself and we will get further and further from an actual readable piece of work <laughs> a regression <laughs> to a mean but you know that's quite an interesting point because then as human beings you have to wonder well what what percentage of what we say is truly original or have we just seeded our mind with a whole bunch of concepts yeah. that we regurgitate is it a collation of our own memories and experiences that question raised in irobot you know in the movie when um will smith goes goes to sunny the robot and says well can you write a symphony and sunny's like no but can you and he makes him look really ridiculous <laughs> right. i gotta move this conversation on before we get way too philosophical here 
philosophical here. Jeez. Um, sorry. <laughs> so moving on then to the news of the week, uh, the IPO market has been pretty dry in 2022. So when a company soars more than fourfold on its public debut, people take notice. Even more so when the company is a household name for many. The LGBTQ dating app Grinder went public via SPAC in November, and its first day was a bit of a roller coaster. It opened at around $17, flew to over $70 before closing at $36.50. Since then, it's been on a basically downward slide and is sitting now well below its original SPAC price. Anne-Marie, could you fill us in here on why this stock has been so volatile in the space of about, what, two, three weeks? Yeah, so actually the day it debuted on, fr- on the Friday, it had 15 volatility halts, which is insane for a single wow. day, particularly your debut day. Um, and basically the the kind of frantic rise of, of Grindr's stock can really be attributed in large part to the low float of the stock, which basically came from the fact that it's SPAC'd. Um, so just a reminder that a SPAC is essentially you have to get a blank check company, which floats and goes public, and then they get to announce, oh, we're merging with this company. And so you're kind of playing that game of being like, oh, if I'm an institutional investor, maybe I'll invest in a SPAC early because I trust this management team is going to go find a great company for me to merge with in the future. But oftentimes those investors are not clear on what, you know, what company they might merge with in the future. You know, I'm sure we can all throw it back to when we were all sitting around wondering what IPOE and IPOF were going to be. <laughs> but essentially what ended up happening was um, Tiga, which is the blank check company that Grindr merged with, um, had done a really good job going around and getting all these institutional investors on board. But then when they announced that they would be merging with Grinder, a fair number of investors were kind of they were basically were like, oh, I'm not I'm not interested in this, um, which basically meant that 98 percent of investors uh, voted to redeem their shares prior to the merger going through. They basically asked for their cash back, just um, like ten dollars a share. So it then meant that when Grinder did float, there was only five hundred thousand shares available. There's meant to be way more than that. This was something that I think Grinder somewhat saw coming. Uh, Their spokesperson said on their debut day, pretty much every institutional SPAC investor has redeemed on their deals in the past six months. So Grindr basically chalked it up to, hey, this isn't an us issue. This is just an overall general market fear of SPACs and uh, kind of a poor sentiment towards, you know, new companies and growth companies at the minute. So yeah, that really contributed to their volatility, just not enough stock being traded. And I think probably a bit of confusion as well about like, you know, the company had been valued at 1.2 billion dollars and there's only 500,000 shares and it caused I think people to kind of pour money in because they thought it was like very undervalued as it debuted. Yeah, so if people look at their chart it's not because Grinder fell apart in 3 weeks it's just kind of a financial anom- anomaly really. Yeah, just a bit of kind of confusing accountancy I think and um we haven't seen like an IPO or a SPAC in a while. I think I don't know maybe we're all a bit out of practice and everyone kind of just no one, kind of No one panicked. knows what to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fair enough. But uh, there's more to this than just another public company on the market. Uh, the CEO, Grinder George Arison, said on its debut, it's not something that would have happened 20 years ago, probably wouldn't happen even 10 years ago. Is this a step in the right direction in terms of inclusivity on Wall Street and, and the message it sends? I think Wall Street would have maybe not the best reputation of being a bit of a, a, bit of a boys club. Uh, though boys club is probably the wrong term to use when you're discussing <laughs> Grinder, but... Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of that that a- attitude, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's very nice to kind of see a company that is so unabashedly like gay or part of the LGBT community have success and go public. But I kind of I was thinking about this question on um, the train ride in this morning and I was kind of like, but you know what? At the end of the day, if you can make money out of something, the market is going to like it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. almost like Grinder has gotten to that point now where they have pretty solid revenue growth. And so it's almost, you know, it's almost like they could debut and 
I would say most people on Wall Street um, are happy enough to, to, to jump in if you have 35% revenue growth or whatever. But I do think it was a very nice moment to have their Wall Street debut. We were talking about this yesterday. Like they had a drag show um, on Wall Street and they had kind of people out front. And I do think it's kind of it's it's nice to have the kind of publicity around the idea of everyone is kind of welcome on Wall Street. I think that's even a good idea to to say to investors who, you know, are at home and investing on their own. I think it's kind of nice to say, hey, like this is accessible. There are companies that you will love. There's a community, you know, that you might be interested in that you can support in this way. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's nice. I think we hopefully we'll see more companies um, like this in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great to see uh, going back to CEO uh, Harrison. He said that this is an app made for gay and bisexual men and it's a company with employees that are predominantly gay and bisexual as well. Mm-hmm. So to see that kind of represented in such a positive light, it's it's a great message to send, I think. Moving on then to the business itself, how does it compare, we'll say, to Bumble and Match Group? Uh, both have kind of been having a tough time of it lately, I think. Uh, is Grinder seeing the same struggles? It's kind of funny because in terms of product, Grinder is a little bit different than say Tinder or or Bumble um, in the fact that it kind of sits on the boundary between a dating app and social media. And that's actually something that Grindr leaned into in their investor presentation. That's something their management team tried to reiterate a lot. Um, and it, like it's really reflected in their usage metrics. Um, on average, a user spends 61 minutes a day on Grindr. That, that, that's way more than Tinder and Bumble. I, I pulled their usage metrics and they're sitting around, you know, 15, 15 20 minute mark. So like three times the amount of time. Um, but that also means that when it comes to trying to monetize a platform like that, you have then the difficulty that social media companies face. You know, you, you're you dealing with things like advertising or, you know, you're dealing with the idea that people have an expectation that this should be free. So that does make it a little bit more difficult. And so that means that sometimes Grindr compares a little bit unfavorably in terms of, you know, the number of paying users. Um, but this is, again, something that they discuss quite openly in their investor presentation. So, for the third quarter of this year, Match reported an average of 16.5 million paying users. Uh, Bumble had around 3.3 million. Grinder only has about 765,000. And that's not great when Grinder has about 11 million monthly active users. So I do think that um, something they will have to work on towards the future if they you know, want to compete with these larger dating apps or maybe dating apps that people are, are on Wall Street would be a bit more familiar with is, is the need to kind of push towards that subscription revenue, um, particularly because Grinder, I believe, makes 80% of its revenue from subscription subscriptions and just 20% from advertising. So, you know, if you if you want to play in this space where you're making the majority of your money this way, you do kind of need to figure out, okay, maybe is our subscription too high? Do we need like a mid-range subscription? Do we need kind of a low entry point, like a freemium type thing? Um, but that is something that both the CFO and the CEO have openly discussed. You know, that is their focus in the year going forward. How do we more effectively monetize this? But there, but there's something really interesting in the fact that um, Grinder is tapping into a faster moving market than maybe Bumble or Tinder is. Um, the current market is about $4 billion. That's the TAM for kind of online social networks and dating apps for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, they, Grindr identifies its future opportunities being about $14 trillion. And essentially for- Say $14 per- trillion. $14 trillion, yeah. <laughs> That's, that was their estimated future opportunity, which I know is quite, quite substantial. <laughs> That's up quite there. substantial. Yeah, Emma, Emma, do you remember we looked at a company once and uh, they put their TAM as, I think it was something like thirty or forty trillion dollars. It was like yeah. the value of every 
property in the world. Yeah, that's right. It's Matterport. <laughs> Matterport, that was Matterport. Yeah. And, and I remember my eyeballs rolled so far back in my head. Look <laughs> at my brain. It was ridiculous. I, I think I think companies want to show that they have a trillion dollar number in the slide deck somewhere. Yeah. It's yeah. The, take a pinch yeah, of salt it's, with it's, that one. Yeah, it's yeah. this year's orange. Um, but I do think it's kind of a reflection of they're arguing that their differentiating factor is worth more because it gives them that moat. You know, I think we would see the dating landscape from an investor standpoint as being quite competitive. You know, when we talk about Bumble, it was very difficult initially to believe in Bumble because Match Group has this history of basically finding any semi-successful dating app and just immediately buying it up. You know, it's this massive holding company. It's it's a big conglomerate. Um, but I think Grindr's idea of we can go this alone is because they're basically saying, you know, we're, we were an app created by the gay community for the gay community. That is our unique advantage. And actually, when we look at revenue growth for the last year, they are actually outpacing both Bumble and Match by a pretty decent margin. So during the quarter that ended in June, which was the one that they reported on for their um, latest investor presentation, Grinders revenue grew by 34% from a year earlier to $46.6 million. Um, in that same period, Match was up about 12% in terms of growth and Bumble was up about 18 So oh, more than doubling, essentially, the growth rate of its two largest competitors. Unfortunately, though, that does mean that when it comes to, you know, price to sales um it is it's a it's hefty so grinders valued it at 13 times trailing 12 month revenue right now which you know is again double kind of what match group and bumble is trading at so you are going to pay a premium for that for that growth rate but they do have kind of quite a few interesting like upcoming monetization opportunities they're not as built out to say tinder or bumble is you know, they don't have a web app at the minute. Um, they don't have kind of a premium add-on uh, market yet. Those are all things that are in development for the company. And that's something they're talking about. You know, they feel that there is a greater monetization opportunity here. So, um, yeah, it is an interesting company. It's it's debuting at kind of an unfortunate time. But I would be interested to kind of keep an eye on it. It's, you know, I, I, you do kind of want to root for the little guy, particularly like Match Group is so dominant. You kind of, you know, it was the same kind of feeling I had with Bumble where you were like, I really like that Whitney Wolfhard has kind of gone off on her own and taken her experience from these larger companies and said, no, like there is a space, there is a niche here for us to build a superior product that has, you know, a mission or, or is targeting a specific community. So, um, yeah, I think I'll be keeping an eye on it for the next couple of months. Yeah, that's interesting what you said. It's kind of you would think because it has a narrower focus and less of a pool maybe to pick from that would hold it back. But that's actually what's mm. bringing it forward is that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, do you think the fact that it went public via SPAC may hold the stock back in the future is definitely a stigma around those companies at the minute? Yeah. I mean, potentially something I thought that was interesting that their management team said was, um, because of the number of people that withdrew from the deal prior to the merger going through, you know, 98% of their investors pulled out. It, it meant that like Grindr essentially made almost nothing from this, from going public. You know, usually you hear about companies and they say, oh, we're going public because we want $600 million to do X, Y, Z, right? Like that's typically the idea. You know, you go public because you need funding in some way. But it was interesting to see their CEO, Arison, he basically said that, oh, Grindr wasn't really looking for that much funding. We just wanted to be a public entity. So they said that they were kind of fine with their SPAC happening in this way, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, yeah, might, I would it might say, be after the fact kind of thing. Yeah. Like, we didn't want you. <laughs> we didn't want your money anyways. We didn't, we didn't want anything. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like, yeah. Um, I do think, like, that is an interesting question. You know, d will the idea of being a SPAC cast a long shadow? You know, is this a reputation you're going to have to live with for the next year or two? We are kind of seeing that. Like, a company that me and Emmett talk about all the time that we're so interested in is BarkBox. And that company is so hated 
by Wall Street, despite the fact it's been performing pretty well and it's in quite an interesting market. And it's 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 backed. And I think oftentimes that sometimes is like the final bullet point that me and Emmett consistently come back to to being like, why is this company underperforming? Like, why is this company trading at one price to sales, 0.5 price to sales? That doesn't make sense to us when it's growing. And oftentimes we have to go back and say, is this because it's backed? You know, has this process left such a bad taste in Wall Street's mouth because of people like Jamath that, you know, companies that debuted in this way, even if they're being successful, will always kind of be looked down upon. I'd say it's something that you will work off, you know, over time people will forget, but it does seem in the present market climate, it's not the best thing to have associated with your company. Mm. What's the inverse of a halo effect? What's what's the opposite of a halo effect? Where <laughs> Little devil horns coming up. On <laughs> this is true. I was looking during the week at the number of listings that have happened in the last few years. And in the year 2020, 480 companies listed on one of the two big exchanges in New York, NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. So 480. Now, when I say list, that includes SPACs plus IPO, which is basically the fork in the road that companies in the last couple of years have have hit. So 480 companies listed in 2020, 1,035 listed in 2021. And then this year, the the number of companies that have listed as of last night uh, was 173. So 480 jumped to 1,035, fell way back to 173. But there's a really good website called spacanalytics.com, which shows everything to do with SPACs. It's just a lovely dashboard. And um, speaking of, I have it open here. And the, the first thing I'd say is the lion's share of the listings last year were in fact SPACs. They were the vast majority. 613 of the thousand odd listings were SPACs, but it also lists the top performers and the lowest performers. Um, Mike, you'd be interested to hear DraftKings makes the list of one of the top performers, but the uh, it's 50% up since, 49% up since it listed. But the absolute number one is Iridium, I or DM, which is up about 800 fold, which when you think of the vast number of companies that listed via SPAC is not great. You know, we're talking about, there's only about a dozen or so companies, maybe 18 as I look at it here, that are up more than 100%. So from these thousands of companies that listed via SPAC, you know, you're only talking about two dozen or so uh, managed to double, which in the the kind of in history's book is a, a poor day, a poor day out for uh, a cohort of businesses. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. It brings us into our second point as well. So we're going from companies going public and moving on to companies going private. So an interesting trend we've seen in 2022 is the rise of private equity companies buying out particularly struggling SaaS businesses software as a service. So the volume of acquisitions has doubled from 29 billion last year to 65 billion so far in 2022. Uh, we actually got this idea from a great substack from Tane Jaipuria. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, but thank you, Tane. Uh, but it raises an interesting conversation, I think, because Emmet, we've seen software multiples fall off a cliff since their COVID highs, especially, but even pre-COVID as well, they're about halfway down. Is private equity smelling a bargain here? Well, let me start by giving a quick description of what is private equity, Mike, um, or PE as it's more commonly known, not to be confused with the PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio, but private equity in the world of of financing is just known as PE. And basically, it's when an investment partnership buys and then manages a company before selling it. And these PE firms operate funds on behalf of either institutions 
and or accredited investors. Um, and the, the, the P firm is usually very active and to varying degrees patient, but most of all, they like them bargains. So the fact that, you know, to your question, P is getting very active, which I'm going to talk about now, it is definitely smelling bargains in the market. And, and like specifically, the median enterprise value or EV divided by the next 12 months revenue um, has gone from about 11, a uh, multiple of 11 pre-COVID to 20x during COVID and now has come right back down below five. So the, the enterprise value divided by the revenue in the year ahead is now below five, which is the lowest in five years. And P has an absolute mountain of dry powder or capital on the sidelines now. Um, it's peak. So in around 2010, the amount of, of P waiting or out there to find a business to acquire and manage and sell was something like, you know, 600, 700 billion. At its peak there in 2020, it hit about 1.5 trillion. And right now there's something like 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars of cash stacked up looking for businesses to acquire, improve and sell. And that's the kind of market we're looking at at the moment. I'm surprised, I'm surprised they still have money left after all they've lost on crypto over the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought that, I thought they would be in the bits, but no, it's the opposite. Do you know something? I know we're, this is not the topic at all, but the whole thing during the crypto craze, I kept my mouth shut. The best I could do is say, look, I'm just, I have a front row seat in the balcony of ignorance. And that was the best I could muster up. And I would kind of occasionally find I might be interviewed on something and asked out of the blue for an opinion on a cryptocurrency. And I had to really just kind of do my best. And even now, I'm still, I still feel this reluctance to call it the greatest Ponzi scheme in the history of humankind which I have said all the way through. Um, and and it's funny now, I still have this thing where I was looking at literally everyone, virtually everyone I interviewed for Stock Club gave me the reason why crypto was the future. I spoke to some of the best thinkers in the world of investing and there were Bitcoin is going to a million dollars, buy Aave coin, buy this coin, that coin. But when you kind of triple click on the why, or go three whys deep, there was nothing there. It was an empty room. Mm. But anyway, look, not, that's another podcast, right? That's <laughs> tangent free, anyway. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, there's been uh, private equity. <laughs> We're circling back. <laughs> there, there's been ten large acquisitions this year of private equities yeah. buying software companies in particular. Are, are there any particular characteristics that all these companies share? Right. Well, I'm going to name the ten companies, and you two guys have to say stop on any you've heard of. And say everything you know about them. Are you ready okay. to play the game? Yeah. Okay. The first was a company called User Testing, sold for 1.3 billion. Did you ever hear of it? No. No, no me neither. Uh, Avalara. Avalara, yeah. That's the You've heard software. of it? Yeah. Maybe. Exactly. Big Maybe. deal. It was $8.4 billion. Ping Identity. Yeah. No. They're yeah, a competitor I'd... to. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, Octa, kind of. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So I'd heard of those. They were the first of the three I'd heard of. Next is No Before, K-N-O-W-B-E number uh, four, No Before. I know that one too. I actually looked at that. It's like a sec- <laughs> oh, did cybersecurity training yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ford Rock is number five. It's sold for two point three bill. Nope. No, no, uh, me neither. Bill Trust sold for one point seven bill. Nope. Okay. Uh, Sale Point sold sold for nearly seven billion, six point nine billion. No. Now here's one Zendesk. Oh, Zendesk, yeah. we know we all are, about. We, yeah, we know all Zendesk. Um, Anaplan is number no. nine of ten. And then finally, the one that I was using 30 years ago is Citrix Systems, which sold for $16.5 billion, by far the biggest PE deal this year. Uh, I hadn't heard of Citrix until I heard how much money uh, the early investors were losing in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so. I tell you, well, I'll tell you what these 10 companies, I, uh, what you, your question was, what did they have in common? Or is there kind of, I think you asked me, was there kind of attributes that are characteristics they share? Well, half of them are thereabouts, half of them are in identity management and endpoint yeah. security. So it's really, you know, it's a hot trend or rather it's a perhaps undervalued industry at the moment that there's there's so much PE money whipping them up. But the, the generally PE looks for businesses with uh, broadly three characteristics, that they have recurring predictable revenue. Because the one thing, P, nobody likes to lose money, whether it's a venture capitalist or an angel investor or a, common, a public stock investor like we are. But of all the categories, PE most hates losing money. And they generally don't like going into anything where there's even a risk of losing a penny. So they trade off. So they like recurring predictable revenue. And most SaaS companies, such as the 10 that I've just called out, have uh, a, a recurring predictable annual recurring revenue that they can kind of uh, put into a spreadsheet and plot out. The second of the three characteristics that you'll find P looks for is their capital efficient. And again, SaaS companies are very capital light. They, the, you know, capital comes in the form of desks, computers, uh, maybe an office space and, a, and I guess pizzas. Uh, third Thursday of <laughs> Bean, every month. Beanbags. <laughs> yeah, Beanbags yeah, and table tennis tables, isn't it? <laughs> apartments in the Bahamas. Th- apartments in the well, no, we we don't want to go on another tangent there. <laughs> and then the third is generally unprofitable because uh, you know many SaaS companies are unprofitable. And in the list of ten I just called out, uh, let me see, are any of them profitable? No, 
Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, actually, yeah, a Citrix is profitable. All the other nine are unprofitable. So there are kind of a char- characteristics there. And and what they what a P firm will do is try and cross the chasm and get that business to profitability. So that's the common attribute, certainly, of this year's shopping sale was endpoint yeah. security, SaaS, unprofitable, capital efficient. Kind of all fixer-uppers, isn't that? The, all fixer-uppers, yeah, exactly. You come in, you take it, you make it more efficient. And then you turn it profitable and try to kind of sell it on to the next fella or go public yeah. again. Isn't that common as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We saw a few over the years come out of what we used to call our showroom in the My Wall Street app. Mind, Mind Body was one that was acquired by a PE firm. Uh, did Buffalo Wild Wings, was that acquired by PE? Sometimes you see it going in the opposite direction from I public markets you. to private. Yeah. Um, but the most common way to to operate this kind of acquisition is through a leveraged buyout. Um, what exactly does that entail? Yeah, well, this is one of the most common private equity strategies. Uh, and you've, you, most people in our space and most people who are just kind of read the business papers have encountered the term a leverage buyout. We're going to do a leverage buyout of my kid's daycare center. Like <laughs> It's kind of like, and you're like, are you? That sounds really clever. But like, what is a leverage buyout? Well, it's where an entire company is purchased. Debt is put on the company and it's run and grown with the debt being paid down and eventually sold because the maths of doing it that way is more favorable. So for example, if you have a business with a hundred million ARR, a SaaS company with a hundred million ARR and it's acquired by a PE firm for five times revenue, so they're going to pay $500 million. Uh, what they can do is put a hundred million dollars in debt and a hundred million dollars for equity. And at the time of sale, seven years or 10 years later, if the company has grown to 200 million in revenue and it's being sold for a more favorable multiple, like 6x revenue as opposed to 5x revenue. So the sale price is $1.2 billion. Um, and they still, they can pay down that debt more efficiently. In other words, they've grown the capital value, but they still have this wedge of debt, which they can pay off, but they manage to leverage the upside by using that. It's a little, I suppose, um, the simple way of of thinking about it is when you buy a house, it's a, a leveraged buyout. You put down some cash and you borrow some, the price of the house hopefully goes up. Yeah. And in the fullness of time, that debt looks insignificant, but allowed you to actually um, participate in the upside. Of course, leverage buyouts are not so great if the price of the asset goes down, which is why PE firms really, really don't like seeing something they've bought heading south. Yeah, and I think that kind of explains the strategy as well. Uh, There's a great book on this. um, It's called Barbarians at the Gates. Have you Mm. read it? It's an absolutely superb book. It was one of the first business books I ever read. Really exciting. The the leverage buyout of RJR Nabisco. Um, and it kind of gives you not the best impression of Wall Street, maybe. No. No. Uh, Imagine. (laughs) Imagine those (laughs) lovely guys. Um, But I, I, looking at this year and maybe stretching here, but like, could you see this kind of, because private equity, you said it, they don't want to lose money and they're definitely smelling Mm. a bargain. Could you see this kind of as maybe an indicator, not to call it a bottom, but maybe that an indicator that tech especially has been oversold Mm -hmm. in the current market? Oh, definitely. I believe so. Like, firstly, when we look at it, as we were saying, like the dry powder, the giant amount of money on the sideline, it's been sitting, if you like, uh, watching 
the price of businesses is measured by the multiples of their revenue. That's fallen and fallen and fallen. We've seen it ourselves. And oh, was it in our last podcast? Got my memory. But like the S&P 500 is propped up by the top five or six companies. Everything else inside it has fallen somewhere between 70 and 90%. It's been a brutal, brutal 12 months. Far worse than the S&P 500 would have you believe because Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, the whole gang are up there at the top, Berkshire, propping it up where the other 480 companies are doing pretty bad. So yes, the market, in my opinion, is in bargain territory. And to your question, Mike, yeah, I do think that this is just another indicator that other people would agree with that view. I I mean, I've gone on record for saying that I think the market is going to bottom on the 15th of June. I've pulled a number. <laughs> I've said 15th of June of yeah, next I year, that. I think I have. And I, um, I wouldn't, I'll share how I came up with that date if I'm right. Otherwise <laughs> I'll keep when tweaking. You came up with it. There wasn't much, there wasn't much evidence-based reasoning going on. <laughs> Excuse me. I might've done it before I said it to you. But anyway, I will publish what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'll publish what I did if I'm right. If I get a plus or minus seven days of 15th of June, I'm going to explain exactly what I did. If, you, if I get it wrong, I'll never mention it again. If you get that right, Emmett, I think you can have any job in any company in the world. I went to Google real quick to see, are there any holidays that fall on the 15th of June? You know, just so we can have some. Yeah. And really fascinating, Fly a Kite Day, Justice for Janitor's Day, Magna oh. Carta Day, and National Lobster Day. National oh, Lobster, Lobster Day, day. great. Who could argue with that? Fly a kite, lobster janitors. That's good. (laughs) Lobsters made for life. Um, We we need to stop going on time. You heard it here first. Stock market is going to bottom out on National Lobster Day. (laughs) National Lobster Day. (laughs) Sorry, folks. If you don't know what National Lobster Day is, look it up. Um, Okay. (laughs) Apart from National Lobster Day, there's also a lot going on here at my Wall Street this week, beyond our Christmas party as well. Emmett, you've sent out a buy alert for Horizon. uh, I'm going to quote you here. They are two bu- two buys that I believe 10 years hence will look like some of the best decisions of 2022. So that's a very mm-hmm. enticing reason there if you haven't signed up already. There's also a new episode of FML going out this week. Uh, it's just been released. For those who don't know yet, FML is our sister podcast in which Anne-Marie and Nicole is now with us. She's downstairs somewhere. Uh, <laughs> they're making investing more approachable, especially for women. So if you haven't listened to that, do go and have a check. Uh, moving on to mailbag then we've got a question in from one of our listeners John he's asked us for an insight on HubSpot Anne-Marie you were looking into this one for us yes and I'm kind of resentful towards John that he (laughs) opted to send in this question on a week when Rory isn't on the podcast because it really is more of a Rory question simply because HubSpot is would be like the main most important competitor now to Salesforce and I think Rory would you know Rory knows a bit more about Salesforce than I do Um, but basically HubSpot doesn't have all its Top execs leaving, I hope. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But they do, in true, like, up-and-coming stock form, have a huge amount of stock-based compensation. But we'll get there in a second. Um, Basically, so HubSpot runs, like, the second best, or some people say the best CRM available today. When I kind of, when I was doing a bit of a dive into the product to see how they are comparatively, like who's using HubSpot over Salesforce, it would appear that it's smaller players, like SME players. It's a little bit cheaper to run HubSpot. It's kind of a bit of a freemium player. You can get some features for free and then, you know, you add a couple more seats to the software or whatever, then you have to start paying. Um, on HubSpot's own website, they run a price comparison between it and Salesforce. And it was like over the vast majority of companies, we work out cheaper. I mean, 
that's a bit rich coming from HubSpot itself. But um, anyway, I think if we were going to do a deeper dive on this, I would be interested in speaking to people who have, you know, picked out a CRM and maybe why they opted to go with HubSpot over Salesforce. But in terms of growth, it's quite an impressive company. It's It does seem like a type of company that, you know, my Wall Street would have been like would be interested in or would have written something about. It's they've had pretty phenomenal sales. They managed to kind of retain this revenue growth rate of about 30 to 35 percent, which is outpacing Salesforce pretty consistently. Salesforce is usually in kind of the low to 20% range. Last quarter, they only turned in 14% revenue growth. That being said, HubSpot is not profitable at the minute, but it does have a lot of our favorite kind of software characteristics. You know, 97% of their revenue is coming from subscriptions, you know, very reliable. Um, You know, it's one of these things that companies end up building a lot of their services upon. It's really sticky. They can't get it out as soon as it's in. Um, Yeah, so it is interesting phenomenal gross margin 84 percent so it would be the type of company that like we probably need to do a deeper dive on um and i would like some kind of input from people within the industry however again exactly what i said earlier about grinder this growth rate is therefore reflected in the price to sales so right now they're trading about 7.9 price to sales the stock has fallen a good bit this year i think it's fallen by more than 55 percent or something um whereas crm which is salesforce is trading at about 4.4 um salesforce is just like the bigger company so you know it's it's just a bit of a slower mover um yeah but it is it is coming for salesforce there is something there it's it's it would appear to be i don't think threatening but it has found a niche in which it can operate kind of below salesforce um and they have a pretty spectacularly growing tam i think it's something like they control one percent of the market and um it's expected to grow ten percent annually so you know kind of lots of room for it to grow if it's if it can even like being second best in such a quickly moving market is still something to pay attention to. Mm. I was just looking here on on LinkedIn. I must know Evan who works in HubSpot. Same. Everyone huge, I went to college with Dublin works there. Presence, yeah. It's I actually, unbelievable. I actually yeah. applied for a job out of college and didn't get it. So Ugh. they can better they off can, without them. They can go away, missing out well, on. Well, you know what? I was talking ten about years of that sweet sweet tech money. Down the drain yeah. for me. No, you, don't, you wouldn't enjoy it anyway. <laughs> they must have yeah. some sort of program, though, where they promote their employees to write on LinkedIn because every person I know who works there has this re- similar writing style for LinkedIn. And it's like yet another beautiful, wonderful, glorious month with <laughs> HubSpot. I yeah. love this place. Writing it's great. From my beanbag. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. I spoke at a thing during the week with um, a lady called Sasha Decker, who's their VP of uh, go-to-market enablement, and she's a motivational speaker. She was absolutely wonderful. I'll tell you one thing. She was one of these people who motivated me to find out more about HubSpot, um, and I've just done so. Thank you, Anne-Marie. <laughs> I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> it comes to you. That's great. All right. Thanks for that, Anne-Marie. Um, let's finish today then with our elevator pitches. Uh, Emmett, what company is on your watch list? Well, I'm going to talk about a company that decided to go and show Argentinians what beef should really taste like. It's called McDonald's. And if if the Argentinians needed anything, it was a lesson in good beef. But <laughs> McDonald's is not called McDonald's in Latin America. It's known as Arcos Dorados, which for those of you who speak Spanish know it means golden arches. And it's quite an interesting business. And I was a shareholder in it 100 years ago. I I honestly was a shareholder in this business for a long, long, long long time. Its market cap is about $1.6 billion. It's a profitable business. Its PE is around 11. Its current share price is $7 and change. And it was 
you know, a couple of years ago was about $25. It's a steady business, but where where uh they have the McDonald's franchise, if you like, for the entire of Latin America, so Argentina and Brazil and Chile, Costa Rica, the whole lot, Mexico, Panama, Peru, you name it. If it's south of California, Arcos Doradas owns and operates the McDonald's brand down there. Um, so it, basically, it's a it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful business as far as I can see because they own a giant brand in an in a, a giant region of the planet that's getting economically more prosperous. Guys, did you know that there's only two countries in the world where uh, livestock, aka aka cows, are only fed grass? Do you want to know what those two countries are? Take a guess. Is it Ireland and New Zealand? You're 50% right, Mike. Uh, well, Ireland and Argentina, I guess. 100% right. Ireland, <laughs> that's kind of fed That's me. why Beyond Meat didn't fly too well here in Ireland. Our beef is too delicious. And I, I don't know if Beyond Meat's going to cut it in South America or Argentina, you know, based on the Irish experience. But uh, so that's it. Arcus Doradus. And um, it's it's got a nice, it's a steady eddy business. It's been around for so long and it will stay around for so long because it's very profitable and it, it has, has some nice figures. It's uh, last quarter, it made about a billion dollars. Just casual billion dollars, no worries. Yeah, throw it there. <laughs> throw Amory. it in the corner there, on top of the other billion. <laughs> Amory, what uh, what have you been looking for? I am going to break several My Wall Street rules to t- to discuss this company that I am a little bit, somewhat, a little bit obsessed with. Um, and actually, interestingly, I talked about this company last week because here at My Wall Street, we just launched a new newsletter, and it's called Deep Dive. And it's where we you know, as analysts consistently were running into this issue where we were writing really long reports that were very detailed because, you know, you fall down some rabbit hole, you find something really interesting and you end up producing this piece that's like several pages long. And then we try and squeeze it into an app and it just, you know, we needed a new place for that. So we launched Deep Dive and the first edition went out last week. And Rory wrote this really great piece about kind of the difficulty of investing in clothing companies because every clothing company is very, very relevant for about five years because they have that cool element. And then, you know, style moves on, the market moves on, and they get left behind. And it's a very good in-depth piece focused on the gap. And then I was asked to write kind of a supplementary article for that that would discuss, you know, what's cool right now. And so I wrote a, a short article that then got cut from the newsletter because it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> so I produced this wonderful piece. Not to air our dirty laundry, but yeah. <laughs> Marie, if you're right, uh, yeah, not too deep dive. Sha- yeah. me, me, shallow dive. Yeah. If you get Amory to write paragraphs, she comes back with like 1500 words. So, but that's it was a really good piece. Anyway, <laughs> and it's now living on the My Wall Street blog and it's linked through on on um, the newsletter. So, this is my great plea to everyone who received that newsletter or has not or needs to sign up for that newsletter. Please click through to read this article, but I will give you a short summary right now because the company that is cool right now is a company called Aritzia. Have either of you heard of them? Yeah, just reading that article. You did, yes. Um, Aritzia is a Canadian. I have been telling Emmett about this company for about two months now. But Aritzia is a Canadian company. Uh, It's a clothing company. And they make like fashionable clothes, I guess you could say. But they're very famous for making kind of staples. So they make, they're very famous for making puffer coats. They're very famous for making like a traditional like wool trench coat. They make, you know, just like T-shirts, plain dresses, that type of thing. You know, they're, they're trying to get into this market of being, you know, we almost don't have to exist within style because a t-shirt is always relevant. If we make a really good high quality t-shirt, we're always going to be relevant. And there are women's fashion clothing brands specifically, and they kind of run in-house brands. So they have about 12 of them. They produce all their own clothing. They're fully vertically integrated. 
And they remind me a lot of Lululemon. So if you remember, Lululemon came out of Canada. They were fully vertically integrated, and they've kind of become this huge success story on Wall Street. So I'm looking at Aritzia. Aritzia is publicly traded, but it is publicly traded in Canada, not in the United States, which is kind of how I'm breaking the My Wall Street rules. We tend to like New York-listed companies. Um, but this company is a monster. It's growing like crazy. So as of right now, they have 105 locations scattered throughout North America. They're only in the United States and Canada. And last quarter, Aritzia saw revenue jump by 50.1%, while comparable same-store sales were up 28.3%. In the United States, revenue increased 79.8%. All the while, because of this vertical integration that it has, it has a gross margin of 44% and an EBITDA margin of 16%, which for a company that's manufacturing clothing is crazy. I wouldn't expect that, yeah. And like it's a pricey these these are pricey clothes. Like their staple jackets are like three hundred dollars. But these like the brand is now so recognizable in the United States and Canada for having high quality clothing. It's just kind of very neutral. You know, there's no kind of flashy Aritzia isn't printed across the back of the jacket. It's just a plain looking jacket that like women invest in these pieces. You know, they say, I'm gonna buy one really good winter coat and it's gonna be an Aritzia jacket. I'm gonna have it for five years. So it's a very interesting company to me. I would love for them to list in New York. Maybe I will break a rule and buy a Canadian stock, but it's, yeah, there is something here where Aritzia has this label of cool, but in some ways I think it could be a cool that it's able to hold on to because it's not overly invested in any one kind of trend. It's just saying, hey, here's a really solid pair of jeans, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. That's Interesting. Okay. Does your, which, bro- uh, which broker do you use, Anne-Marie? Um, I have two because I use an American one and then I use yeah. um, an Irish one. I use our broker for my Irish yeah. stuff. Uh-huh. I think I need to check if it's listed. Yeah. You mean Ar- Arista? Aritzia. Aritzia. I always say Arisa, <laughs> uh, who makes sandwiches. Uh, so, yeah, okay, right. So, yeah, really, the reason we avoid, the reason I ask is there's no avoidance of Canadian companies per se. Um, some of the world's greatest companies are Canadian uh, it's just the there's so many partitions and silos when it comes to brokers uh, and what stocks you can buy with your brokerage and that's why I ask and then I guess we know we like the standard of governance on the two big stock exchanges in New York however it's very similar standards of governance in Canada so it's from to me it's total whitelisted jurisdiction for investing so it's not a, a rule that I would be too hung up about considering the research you've done yeah. I would also say for anyone who wants to go have a look themselves or like read any investor presentations, you have to remember they're talking about Canadian dollars rather than US dollars, which uses the same symbol. So it is probably worthwhile converting that so you understand what, you know, a billion is in US dollars. Very good. Right. Is it like Italian era? Is it like so? Is it like 500 Canadian dollars to the US dollar? It gives no, a lead or something. I think it's like 50, <laughs> there's like a 15 or 20% difference. Uh, I think it's so in and around there. Very exciting. No. <laughs> Okay. Before we get into an FX chat now at the end, um, that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcast platform you you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, 
Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.